You are listening to the sermon podcast of Covenant Presbyterian Church. We are a community in Madison, Wisconsin, who gathers to worship, to learn, to serve, and to grow together in God's love. Please visit us online at www.covenantmadison.org, where you can find information about Covenant Ministries, as well as links to our online worship services and sermon podcasts. So during this season, we've been reflecting on this theme of life in all its fullness, pondering the resurrection of Jesus and trying to figure out what it means. Looking at the words of Jesus in John chapter 10, where Jesus says, I have come that they might have life, life in all its fullness. Other translations say life in abundance, and the the message describes it as real and eternal life, more and better life than they dreamed of. Jesus came to offer us this life, to invite us to, to wake up and to live life with a sense of purpose and clarity and intention. Now, a quick side note here. Next Sunday, with everything else that's going on, we're starting something for the 13 weeks of summer. Each week, there's going to be a memory verse of Scripture. The hope is that you might memorize it, that you might learn it, that you might take it to heart. If you've been coming to worship over any of the last few weeks, you might have already gotten a head start on this. Because maybe, after all the repetition with this verse from John 10, chapter 10, maybe you've memorized or taken to heart this idea that Jesus came to bring life in all its fullness to us. So good job. You're off to a good start with our memory verses for the summer. The lectionary readings over these weeks of Easter have given us some guidance as to how to live this life that Jesus offers, this, how, to, how to move towards and, and inhabit um, life in all its fullness. Most of our readings have come from the section of John's gospel known as the farewell discourse, John chapter 13 through 17, big chunk of the gospel. Um, And in that section of the gospel, Jesus does a lot of talking. If you have a red letter Bible where the words of Jesus are in red, there's a lot of red in those chapters. John 13 through 16 has all these teachings where Jesus tells us things like love one another, serve one another, washing one another's feet, welcoming the peace of God, Jesus talks about. He talks about being the vine, saying we are the branches, and he says that his followers are his friends. So there's a lot in those chapters. But then chapter 17, which is also part of the farewell discourse, shifts a little bit. And it's one of the most fascinating chapters in the Bible because in this chapter, Jesus is praying for the disciples and by implication, praying for us. How fascinating that Jesus prayed for them and get this almost mystical sense that Jesus prays for us. Our scripture lesson for today is seven verses of that prayer. Jesus prays for unity among his followers, Um, something that um, seems challenging. Um, Jesus seemed to be aware that his followers would have a habit of divisiveness and arguments and bitterness. Now, the prayer um, in John 17, um, this prayer for unity, is the foundation of a book, a book called Peace Talks, The Good News of Jesus in a Donkey-Elephant War, right? We've got several copies of this book in the church library. And earlier this year, we actually had an adult education class 
via Zoom with the author of this book, who's got a fascinating and wonderful ministry going on out in Arizona. Um, it's a great opportunity to learn and grow together. Uh, the reading from John 17 reflects this sense of mystical unity that Marge hinted at in her children's message, this sense of unity between God the Father and Jesus the Son, a sense of unity between Jesus and his disciples, and then Jesus' desire, hope, longing, prayer for a sense of unity among his followers. Appropriately, the section on prayer, this section of the prayer, closes with several reminders of love. Listen now for God's word. And I'll be reading from the message version of the Bible. I'm praying not only for them, them being the first disciples, but also for those who will believe in me because of them and their witness about me. The goal is for all of them to become one heart and mind. Just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, so they might be one heart and mind with us. Then the world might believe that you, in fact, sent me. The same glory you gave me, I gave them. So they'll be as unified and together as we are, I in them and you in me. Then they'll be mature in this oneness and give the godless world evidence that you've sent me and loved them in the same way that you've loved me. Father, I want those you gave me to be with me right where I am so they can see my glory, the splendor you gave me, having loved me long before, the, long before there ever was a world. Righteous Father, the world has never known you, but I have known you. And these disciples know that you sent me on this mission. I've made your very being known to them, who you are and what you do, and continue to make known, so that your love for me might be in them exactly as I am in them. Thanks be to God for the words of Scripture. The Christian Century is one of my favorite publications. It comes out every week, and it always has good material in it. And they have an occasional column called How My Mind Has Changed. They ask leading theologians and writers and thinkers, pastors, to reflect on ways that they have grown and changed over the course of their life reflecting on issues of faith and social um, issues and family and more. The preface for the series says this, during times of turbulence in politics and culture and religious life, it's tempting to hold tightly to current convictions. Allowing a change of one's mind or heart can be difficult work. With this in mind, we have resumed a Christian Century series published at intervals since 1939 in which we ask leading thinkers to reflect on their own struggles, disappointments, and hopes as they address the topic, how has my mind changed? I think it's incredibly refreshing to think of the best thinkers of the world, the best pastors, theologians, writers, that they acknowledge that they have changed their minds over the course of their life, that they don't have it all figured out yet. So if they don't have it all figured out yet, we probably don't either. And the thing is, 
in our Christian vows, there's sort of an implied sense of changing one's mind. In the vows we take for membership, baptism, and confirmation, we ask one another about turning from the ways of sin and turning to Jesus Christ. And that word turn is essentially the word repent, which really means to turn around, to change direction, or to change one's mind. Literally, repentance means changing one's mind. So a core principle of our Christian life is about change, changing our direction, changing our mind. And it's not a one-and-done thing. When you join the church, God's not done with you. When you're baptized, God's not done with you. It's an ongoing process. In a sense, we need to answer those questions every day. Now, as we sit here and talk about changing one's mind, I'm guessing some of you are sitting here thinking about ways that your mind has changed, or maybe you're thinking about ways that you think your mind could change or should be changing or is in the process of changing. And I'm guessing there might be some of you here who are thinking about other people. Other people, you know, loved ones, family, co-workers, whatever, who really ought to change their mind because they're wrong and I'm right. Well, <laughs> both might be necessary and good. It might be necessary for those people to change their minds, but it's probably necessary for all of us to be at least open to changing our minds and to recognize that we don't know all the answers yet either. And the thing is, it's a lot harder to change their mind than it is to change our mind. So as Christians, I think we need to start with ourselves. In this bitter and divisive time in which we find ourselves, we want to change everyone else's mind, but unity is not just getting other people to think and act like us. It's trying to work together to find some common ground. And even if unity seems elusive or naive or even impossible in this divisive era in which we find ourselves, we can still work towards civility, decency, and the possibility of baby steps, of learning and growing and changing a little bit and finding some of that common ground. Over the last year, thanks to a member of this church, I've become a fan of Good Faith, a weekly podcast by two gentlemen named David French and Curtis Chang. In April, there was an episode called The Partisan Mind Versus the Mind of Christ. And that encouraged listeners to avoid excessive partisanship, to avoid identifying ourselves by a political party, and to be open to changing our minds on things and recognizing some of the nuance in these issues that divide us with the implied goal of unity, the unity that Jesus prayed for in John 17. I re-listened to that episode about the partisan mind and the mind of Christ this past week after the tragedy in Texas. The invitation for Jesus' followers to take on the mind of Christ appears several times in the New Testament, most famously perhaps in Philippians 2. Some of you might know that passage. And my sense is that we're called to act and to think like Jesus, with compassion, with hope, with justice, with humility, with courage, and with love. So on this podcast, the, the hosts encourage listeners to shun any sense of partisan identity, to avoid strictly identifying ourselves in one way or with one political party, and really try to understand people with different views. One helpful goal that they and plenty of other people lay out, including the Peace Talks book, 
is when you realize that someone you know has a different opinion about a controversial issue, is to talk with them and to try to understand that view and to repeat it back to them and to be able to tell this person with whom you have a fundamental disagreement to be able to articulate how they see the issue in a way so that they can say, yes, you understand what I think, even if you don't agree with it, that you're able to articulate what they believe. So maybe next time you're with somebody who's got a different view about guns, abortion, immigration, whatever, instead of getting bitter, instead of not talking to them, instead of starting an argument, maybe take a deep breath, depending on the context, it's not going to work with everybody, but maybe you take a deep breath and sit down and say, can you help me understand your position on this? Trusting that at some level they're a decent human being and they're trying, just like we're all trying, to make this world a better place. The podcast hosts also talk about the difference between being an advocate and being a learner. Essentially saying we need to start with being a learner before we advocate for issues. And remember, Jesus called disciples who are called learners. We talk about learning God's love and living God's love. We learn first, then we live. So we've got to keep that posture of learning and humility and openness to change at the forefront so that fuels our advocacy. It's not saying don't be an advocate but it's saying keep the posture of learning there. That's what I feel like the Christian gospel is calling us to do, having that openness, that changing of our minds, while also at the same time working for change. Finally in the podcast, you can tell I really like this podcast because I've been talking about it for a while, but finally in the podcast, they made me really, really happy as a Presbyterian because they brought up one of the documents in our Book of Confessions, our Constitution of the Presbyterian Church, um, the Westminster Larger Catechism. Other churches use and respect this document from the 1600s as well. Um, among other things, this lengthy catechism reflects on the Ten Commandments. And each one of the Ten Commandments, there's sort of a question and answer thing, and it says, what does this commandment teach? And what does this commandment require? In the podcast, they focused on the Ninth Commandment. Anybody know what the Ninth Commandment is? Well, I'll tell you, just in case you've forgotten. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor, right? That's what it says. So among other things, this catechism teaches us that we need to speak the truth, right? That's kind of what you'd expect. Um, not bear false witness, we need to speak the truth. But it goes a little bit further than that. The uh, the teaching in the catechism, in the spirit of loving neighbors and even loving enemies, the catechism says that the ninth commandment requires a charitable esteem of our neighbors, loving, desiring, and rejoicing in their good name. Now, you know, as I read this, think about somebody that you've got a fundamental disagreement with, right? A charitable esteem of our neighbors, loving, desiring, rejoicing in their good name, sorrowing for and covering their infirmities, freely acknowledging of their gifts and graces, defending their innocency, a ready receiving of a good report and an unwillingness to admit of an evil report concerning them. Now keep in mind, this was published in 1647 by essentially Protestant churches at a time when the Protestants and the Catholics despised one another. Right? It teaches that we need to give each other the benefit of the doubt and be generous in the ways we think about one another. And that might help us if we want to work towards that unity which Jesus prays for. So if we're going to strive 
for the common good. We need to be patient with one another and, and listen and care. Those things all might be necessary for us to move forward. The need for unity, or at least for some bridge building, is as important now as it's ever been. Divisions have always been present in our world. Just look at the New Testament. Some of those letters Paul wrote churches, you know, right from the start, they started squabbling about all sorts of stuff. Plenty of conflicts in that time. But the last five or ten years, it's felt a little different. The last five or ten years, things have really accelerated with deepening political polarization in our country and even around the world. The thing that's interesting is 50 years ago or so, parents were mostly concerned that their kids might marry someone who wasn't of their faith tradition, right? The Catholics were worried the kids were going to marry a Protestant. The Protestants were worried their kids were going to marry a Catholic. Well, today, I don't hear that hardly ever. But what I do hear and what I read is that parents are terrified if they're Republican that their kid's going to marry a Democrat or if they're a Democrat that their kid's going to marry a Republican, right? The division is so strong. It's like the extremes have taken over and we've lost the center somehow. I heard that a few years ago. I mentioned this a couple of years ago in our series on divisive issues. There was a graduation speech where a young man got up in a highly partisan part of the country and in his speech he offered an inspiring quote and in that quote, he said, and, and President so-and-so from, I won't even say who it was, from this party said it. And everybody clapped. And then the graduation speaker said, oh, wait, I'm sorry. It was President so-and-so from, from this party. <laughs> people stopped clapping like that, and a couple people booed. It's like we can't even listen to one another anymore. We've got these labels on, right? The content doesn't even matter. It's like if you're red or you're blue, I'm going to hear you very differently. And there's complicated reasons for that, and sometimes there's good reasons for caution. I get that. But boy, we've reached a tough place in our world. We can do better. Almost done here. We're all horrified by the shooting in Uvalde, Texas this past week. Lord, have mercy on all of us. 19 kids, two adults, young man with a machine gun practically, whatever it was, assault rifle. It's an absolutely devastating and horrible situation. And we find ourselves, again, with this division, this whatever about gun laws and regulations and somehow in the, in the spirit of unity somehow our system has failed to unify on taking some sort of action towards lessening these mass shootings. There's pretty broad consensus depending on what polls you listen to 60 to 90 percent on what most people call common sense gun reform background checks no access to military style weapons red flag laws etc. All those things are there, but somehow we've collectively failed politically to enact anything that works. I and many others continue to hope and pray and write letters and, and send emails to urge politicians of goodwill to come together across the spectrum and have the courage and humility to recognize that we've got to do something to find ways to work together for the common good. And those of us who call ourselves Christians can help with this process. And being bitter and cynical and hateful isn't part of that. On this Memorial Day weekend, maybe we can take some inspiration from veterans, from veterans who have done their part to fight the good fight, to persevere, to work for the common good, to work together, to encourage one another, to make a difference in the world. As Christians, my hope and prayer for this day, for this week, for this issue, for always, is that we can continually be open to changing our minds. 
to being open to new ways of thinking, new ways of learning, new ways of living, new ways of really loving our neighbors and working together for the common good and at the same time striving to take on the mind of Christ and make God's love real in the world. Amen.